If you'd like to hear more, please stay after. Uh, Dan will buy as much pizza as is necessary uh, for everybody who would like to stay, but save me a little lasagna first, Dan, wherever you want. Everybody doing well? Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in a series where we're talking about boldness, being bold for the Lord. Uh, and again, when, as I talk about boldness, I'm not talking about arrogance or being mean or ugly. Uh, we see enough of that in the political realm right now. Amen? Amen? It's getting ugly out there, people. We need to be bold in the Lord. Boldness is not arrogance or ugliness. Boldness is also not... um, Many of us see Jesus, and we see the picture of Jesus meek and mild. Meekness, to me, is boldness under control. Uh, There is boldness in the Lord. There's an understanding of who we are in Jesus. It talks about his followers on several occasions. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, verse 13... It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. This is a, uh, an account in Acts 4 where Peter and John are standing before the religious leaders and in that moment there's a boldness that's on them in their response. So much so that they recognize, the religious leaders recognize this could not be in and of itself, about these men. They're not educated. They're not wealthy. Oh, we know what it is. They've been with Jesus. Hopefully, that's what we want to portray to the world around us, a healthy, winsome boldness that we know Jesus. Hebrews 13.6 says that we can even boldly come into the Lord's presence. The Lord is our helper. We don't have to fear what can man do to me. So we've been talking about this theme of boldness this morning on this Palm Sunday as we look at the cross again, look at the meaning of the cross. I want to talk about the bold sacrifice that comes as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. A proper understanding of the cross, people, is critical for us. We need to understand, we know the cross, we've seen the cross, we've got crosses in our homes, we have crosses around our necks, we have cross earrings, we know the cross, but do we really know, know the cross? Emil Bruner, a Swiss theologian, says this, the cross is the sign of the Christian faith, of the Christian church, of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He who understands the cross aright understands the Bible. He understands Jesus Christ. We've talked about this over and over and over again that from my perspective and Bruner's perspective as well, Jesus Jesus Christ and the cross are the interpretive key that unlocks the entire Bible. If we don't understand the cross... If we don't understand Jesus, we'll never fully understand the Scripture. Too many years. Too many. 
I've found myself kind of running from waving palm branches, our children, the lovely way they bring the palm branches in every Palm Sunday, running from Palm Sunday through Monday, Thursday, Good Friday into Easter without ever really taking time to pause and to look afresh and anew at the cross. To see what Jesus did for us and more importantly, who we are because of the cross. Without Jesus, whether we know it or not, without the cross, we are all held captive. We're captive to sin, we're captive to thoughts, we're captive to death. We think and act in a certain way, and what we need is someone to deliver us from this captivity. You see, the sacrifice and the cross, they say something to us. But is it communicating to us what it's supposed to communicate? This past week, I'm using this illustration with permission from those involved. I wanted that to be clear. Uh, This past week, week before last, I went away to study for a week. I do this on occasion where I go to study, look at uh, sermons, plan, pray through what God would have us to look at on Sunday mornings. so I've outlined my sermons pretty much for the rest of the year, but I was in a very isolated place that didn't have cell phone coverage. Praise the Lord, there are still places like this on the earth where I didn't have cell phone coverage. I had Wi-Fi, but so I could communicate with my family, and there's an emergency phone, but otherwise I wasn't getting all my text messages and all that kind of stuff. So I come down out of the mountains, and I have put in Adrian's CD, my brother's driving. I put in Adrian's CD to play for my brother, her new one. If you haven't got it, buy it. Uh, if she's out of them, buy the iTunes card. Go download it. Listen to it. It'll bless you. Was that good? All right. Um, so I was listening to her CD, and I was telling my brother, really, hey, you need to have Adrian come down to your church and do what she did at our church where she sings and um, tells the stories behind the songs. It, I, it, that night was just such a blessing to me. And so I was playing a couple of my favorite songs. Well, as soon as uh, I came into cell phone coverage, we're listening to Adrian's CD, I get a text, ironically, from Adrian. Here's the text I get from Adrian. Let's see if I can do this right. She says to me, Stacy and I were wondering how okay you and Kathy are. Smiley face. Now, for those of you who know Adrian and Stacy, and I've known them for 15 to 20 years, they've been on staff, I've worked with them, um, they, they love me, but they've never asked me how Kathy and I are. I mean, it's just not in their nature to be asking that those kind of more intimate questions. But I know Stacy and I know Adrian, and they're women of prayer. So I'm thinking, if God has placed Kathy and I on their hearts, then obviously they want, you know, there's something going on. So I respond, trying to figure out how much to be revealing, honestly, in a text message. But I respond, we're doing okay. It's been a very stressful time. We're trying to deal with everything the best we can. Thank you for your love and your prayers. There's a little more, but I'll limit it to uh, that much. So then Adrian responds to me and says, Thank you for being real with me. I will definitely be praying for you and the family more. Great. 
Next text message from Adrian says the following. In full disclosure, though, the question I was asking should have said, how old are you and Kathy? Sometimes it doesn't say what we think it says, right? Why did you want to know how old I was anyway? Just wondering. (laughs) Hey, listen, people, we've got to get the message of the cross right. I mean, really, we've got to get it straight in our heads because if we don't, we as Christians... Followers of Jesus Christ are always going to be messed up. We may think the cross is saying one thing when it's actually saying another. We may assume it means this when actually it doesn't. Palm Sunday is a great example of things not meaning what they think they mean, right? Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday. The people are out yelling, screaming, waving palm branches, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, hail to the king who comes. But he's a king not like they expect him to be. See, they're claiming a king who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to restore Israel, who's going to do... And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you think. That's why by Friday, the same people who are screaming for His lordship, his kingship are screaming for his death. Because Jesus doesn't do things in the way we think he should do them. And the cross is a great example of this. We need to get the message of the cross right. 1 Peter 2, verses 23 and following, talking about the cross, says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Skipping to the next chapter in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. I want to look at the cross again this morning. Just focus for a second. Try to put some things out of your head and try and receive what the Spirit of God is saying to you about the cross and who you are as a result of the cross. You may be here today. You know the stories about Jesus. You know the stories that he was born, that he lived a great life, and bad people killed him. But you've never received Jesus Christ as the one who leads your life and forgives your sins. You may be here today and in that position. You may know a lot of information, but you're not in a relationship with him. I want to encourage you as you listen to the message of the cross this morning to know that this can be for you. You can receive the forgiveness of the things you've done wrong. 
You can be in relationship with the God who created you. The cross makes that possible. Also, you may be here today and you know Jesus and are in a relationship with him, but for some reason you didn't think it was quite enough. So you're trying to help God out by work really hard, by doing things right, by helping Jesus finish what he's already finished. And I want to say to you people, there is freedom if you'll listen to this message today. There is freedom from your conscience. There is freedom from your disappointment. There is freedom from your striving. There is freedom to live by the cross of Christ. So I pray that the Spirit of God would make this come alive to us today. First, it has to do with the nature of the sacrifice Jesus gave us. The nature of the sacrifice. Again, in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. And there's this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Who was righteous? Jesus was the righteous. Who were the unrighteous? You can wave your hands. The unrighteous. For all have sinned, right? In Romans, it says everyone sinned. That means everybody around you is in the same boat. And it is a boat that's sinking. Because the wages of sin is death. All have sinned, and the wage we deserve for that sin is death. But Jesus, who was sinless, died for thus us who were sinful, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. In order that we could have a relationship with him. Now, this righteous, unrighteous thing, we get that. Jesus was perfect and sinless. I was unrighteous. I like the way the New American Standard puts it because... These terms righteous and unrighteous are, I don't want to get too theological this morning. I want to make it practical, but they're judicial terms. They have to do with justice. So in the NIV, it says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, Jesus, for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You see, Jesus' death, Jesus' death was not just this great moral example, right? That a guy would lay down his life. Hello. You know, a lot of people view the cross as a moral picture, like Jesus died on the behalf of others. But there is something that took place on the cross that has incredible significance that goes beyond it. And it's offensive. It was offensive then. It's always been offensive. You might say, well, I understand it was offensive then because it's like the whole electric chair. You know, the, who, why, would the, why would God die on a cross? To the Romans and Greeks and Jews, the cross was offensive because it's an instrument of torture and death. But why is it so offensive to us? Well, if you receive the true message of the cross, it's offensive to us because no one wants to be told they're a sinner. Hello? No one wants to be told, hey, you're a sinner. We don't even use that term hardly anymore. It's become so offensive. We try to soften it. I'm sure you've done something wrong in your life. I'm sure you've stumbled and fallen on occasion. Nobody wants to say say to somebody, hey, you're a sinner and your sins are going to lead to death and eternal separation from God. Billy Graham says this, To many people, 
it is an offense. The cross is offensive because it directly confronts the evils which dominate so much of the world. It's offensive. It is an offensive message to be told. Here's the picture. And again, forgive me if I get a little theological, but we can all handle it, I hope. The picture is this. We have all sinned, meaning we've all done something wrong. The payment for our sin, our wrongdoing, is death. Is death. The picture that the Bible says is this. God hates sin. I mean, he hates it so much that his wrath or anger, his judgment, is turned toward our sin. Right? Now, a lot of people don't like that message of an angry God. They make it sound like, and and therefore, what Jesus did on the cross was he went to go pay the penalty for our sin so that the anger, so to speak, the wrath of God is not turned against us. It was all turned on him on the cross. People, this message is offensive. People outside the church hate it. People inside the church hate it. They don't like the idea of God's wrath being turned on his own son, really himself. Some people have called this cosmic child abuse. The wrath of God being turned to Jesus on the cross. In 2012, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend wrote a really popular uh, modern hymn that we sing in this church called In Christ Alone. Great hymn. Great hymn. It has great, rich theology. In 2012, they found themselves in the middle of a media controversy because uh, the, the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to put it in their hymnal. The PCUSA, that's the more liberal, what we would call the more liberal end of uh, the Presbyterian Church, wanted to put it in their hymnal. But there's this line in the hymn that says this, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change the line to this, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Because they didn't want, and there has been a move. This is not new, and it's not Presbyterian alone. I come from a Baptist setting. When we were, they were doing the new Baptist hymnal in 1990, they wanted to soften the message of the blood of Christ. Across denominational lines, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, we want to soften the truth about the blood. Why? Because it's offensive. It's offensive in this way. We don't want to think we're guilty. Right? You see, we want to think, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm pretty much across the bridge. And really what Jesus did on the cross was just reached out a hand and pulled me the rest of the way over. We think of ourselves as pretty good. Right? People, we are not pretty good. We're not, uh, not only close to the end of the bridge, we're not even on the bridge. We can't get ourselves on the bridge. In fact, we are so far separated from God that the only hope that we had was that God would come to us. He is the bridge. And the cross is the bridge that allows us to walk into relationship with God. Jesus, he suffered. He became he allowed himself to pay the penalty 
the just for the unjust. If you're just in a legal standpoint, that means you don't owe anybody. You don't owe taxes. You don't owe time. You don't owe your freedom. You're just. You're fine. You're good. If you're unjust, that means you owe something. You owe money, back taxes. You owe time because of something you've done. You owe your freedom because of some, something that has occurred. You're unjust. Think of it like this. Let's say that um, you, you've, you totally messed up your taxes or did something fraudulent or whatever, and now you owe five times more in taxes than your total net worth. Right? Uh, can you all relate? At least those of you who are over 18 who've made some money and understand what it means to pay taxes. You owe more than you're ever going to be worth. Five, ten, twenty times more than you're worth. So the IRS is going to come and collect. They're going to get their money somehow from you. They're going to collect. But let's say a friend of yours, their exact net worth is worth exactly what you owe. You with me so far? You still in this illustration? They have exactly to the penny what you owe is their net worth. And they step in and they say, I'll pay your debt. You've got no debt. I mean, you've got no ability to pay the debt. Now they're going to step in giving every penny they owe to pay your debt. The IRS comes in takes the paintings off the wall, furniture out of the house, money out of the bank account, takes every single thing they have, but your debt is paid. This is, this is a weak and horrible picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But it's still the picture that you owed a debt because of your sin. You were unjust. These people were just. They were free to do what they wanted. But they chose to pay the price so that you could become, your liabilities were taken care of. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sinned for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's what I believe. I believe that that Jesus Christ received the full penalty. He decided to receive the penalty of sin on himself in order that we could become, we can become free. There's a lot of theological sticking points in this. In other words, did Jesus Christ literally become sin or did he receive the payment of sin? Or it's a sticking point. I, I think that he became, he received the penalty of everything, the sins, past, present, future, everything on himself. And as a result, I become righteous. Now, did I literally become righteous? In other words, did I literally say I act right from this moment forward? No, but, I, but in God's sight, I'm right. From a judicial standpoint, I'm now declared, am I getting too confusing? This is important, how God sees me. What did I do to deserve to become right in God's sight? I did nothing. God did everything. Jesus received my payment on himself. I didn't do anything. Why? Because I can't. I have no ability to do it on myself. 
In 2006, Warren Buffett, the billionaire, gave $30 billion to the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. When he gave it, he jokingly said this, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. He was kind of joking, I think. 71% of Americans believe you can work your way into heaven. 71 Why? Because we think we can do it. Surely, surely God is going to, you know, he wouldn't send a, I'm a good person. Oh, yeah, I, okay, I did a couple of things, but my good far outweighs my bad. No, it doesn't. One bad totally disqualifies you. Why? Because God hates sin that much. But God didn't say, look, oh, you know, earn your way back in. He said, I'll do it for you. So when Jesus Christ goes, and by the way, Jesus Christ wasn't forced to go onto the cross. He did it voluntarily. I mean, in this passage in Peter, it says they hurled, he didn't retaliate. When they did all this stuff against what what does it mean when it says he did not retaliate? It means he could have. You know, it doesn't say he couldn't do anything. He couldn't retaliate. It says he did not retaliate. Meaning that he could have destroyed all of them if he had chosen to do so. Instead, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who treats rightly. Okay. The nature of the cross. The just, Jesus, suffered for the unjust, me, to take the penalty of my wrongdoing on himself, and he did it voluntarily. I'm going to move through the last two points a little faster. The finality of the sacrifice, and this is really important. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered how many times? Once for sins. Again, the the New American Standard for Christ also died for sins once for all. Now, this is an important truth. And again, there are a lot of theological implications. A lot of various denominations handle this differently. I believe it says this. Jesus died once for all. Died once for all. That means I'm saved. Once for all. When Jesus died on the cross in John 19.30, it says, he said, as his final words, it is finished. It's finished. In, in the Greek, this is one word, tetelestai. In other words, he didn't say it is finished. He just, tetelestai, one word. It's finished. It's done. It's completed. It carries the meaning that it, it's completely paid for. I've satisfied all the requirements. It's done. I'm not going to continue to do this work. This work is finished. When um, this word is used a lot in the ancient world, but one of the situations it's used for is on business receipts. When I fully pay off my debt, they would write the word tetelestai, paid in full. Hello, you get it? Paid in full, meaning that when Jesus died on the cross, what he came to do was not only completed, But all the sins for all time, past, present, future, have been paid for. Paid in full. 
paid in full. That, that means that if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ is the one who leads your life and forgives your sins, you can receive him and know that your debt is paid in full. You don't have to do anything else. He's, he's done it for you. It's finished. Many of our problems come because we don't fully grasp that it's done. It's paid for completely. Let me give you just one example. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, let me talk about our conscience, just for all of us, just for a second. Anybody here struggle with your conscience? Don't raise raise your hand. Or you can if you want to. (laughs) Raise your hand. Struggle with our conscience? I mean, we play all sorts of tricks to try and handle our conscience, right? We try to beat it into oblivion. We try to ignore it. We try to blame it on others. We try to medicate it. Hello? We try to do stuff to try and handle our conscience. Religious people try to handle their conscience in a very specific way. We think, oh, I've done this bad, so I'm going to do more good. I mean, that's religion, right? Uh, Trying to outweigh, do more good than bad to handle our conscience. Listen, if you're in a battle with your conscience, you're going to lose and your conscience is going to win every time. You cannot beat your conscience. Now, now I know some of you have very hyperactive consciences. It's good, except if your conscience is condemning you. Like, if I mess up, my conscience is going to completely condemn me. Why? Because, really, the enemy works in that way. He is always accusing, and he'll use your conscience. Again, please don't misunderstand me to say you shouldn't understand the difference between right and wrong. I'm just talking about the battle with your conscience that always condemns you and tells you you're guilty. If you get a hold of the truth that the cross is the finished work of Jesus Christ for our sins, then rather than trying to do battle with your conscience, you can turn to your conscience and say, yeah, I screwed up. But you know what? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Meaning what? God has declared me righteous once and for all. Here's what I want to say to you. Quit trying to help Jesus finish his work on the cross. He's done it, right? It's, it is complete. It is finished. It's done. You trying to help Jesus finish it, is not, it's just going to frustrate you. It's going to make you more religious and not more free. Quit thinking that you received a free gift from God, but now that you've got to work really hard to deserve it, to earn it. It is finished. And again, I could preach a whole sermon. Maybe I'll come back to this someday, the finished work of... I mean, think of all the implications of this. If Christ did it once for all, what it's going to mean for you. Leads to the third point, the result of this sacrifice. And I want to give you two competing, I don't want to say truths, because can truth be competing? But two competing ideas that are both present in the Scripture. And they're right here in these verses. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? Bring you to God. Once you're brought to God, you're brought to God, right? 
He brought us to God. And over in 1 Peter 3, it says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. These two powerful truths are there. I I believe Christ's sacrifice on the cross once for all has brought you to God. What, what, What did you do to deserve to get there? I mean, you can talk back to me at this point so we can all stay awake a little better. Nothing. You didn't do anything. So what do you do that keeps you there? This is really important. Nothing. Why? Because he did it. I just received what he did. Now, this sounds way too good to be true, right? This sounds like, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I know what you're saying here is I can't screw up so badly that I'm moved from there to here. Well, the theological truth is, yeah, I I don't see it. Christ died once for all for your sin so that you're here. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that once you're here and really here, you'll want to screw up so badly that you move out. And that's the other part of the truth. He died. Why? So that I would die to sins and live for righteousness. Now, here's what Peter is saying. By the way, usually when the Bible talks about sin in the theological, it uses singular, sin. I died to sin, meaning the effects of sin in my life. But Peter uses the plural word here, sins. I've died to sins, meaning what? I've, I'm, God has freed me from having to do this stuff. I'm free to live rightly. I'm free to not do that stuff. So here are the two truths. I am free not to sin anymore. Hallelujah. I'm free not to mess up. Oh, but by the way, when I do, I'm still right here in his hands. I'm here held tightly by him. What can separate me from the love of God? According to Romans, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Some of you are here today, and here's what you need to hear. God's got a hold of you. God's got you in his hands. You are held tightly by him. Quit letting your conscience beat you up. Say to your conscience, say to your disappointment, I am his and I'm his completely. There's freedom in that. Amen? That's the grace message. Some of you, however, are here today and you need to hear this. Quit sinning. You are free to not sin. Sin doesn't have a hold on you. You're, di- you're dead to sins. All of them. So let the truth of God, the righteousness of God, be more than just you're declared not guilty. Let it permeate how you live your life. Aren't those great results that you can walk in freedom that you can walk in life. David Faraday is a golf announcer. Uh, I think it's CBS, but he does the golf channel, I know. He's a British guy. 
really a funny dude. And he tells this story about uh, a golfer who was going to the Masters for the very first time. Now, I, I understand sometimes I use illustrations and not everybody's on the same page. Like last week when I said, we're the Nirvana Church. Did, there were some of you who had no idea what I was talking about, didn't you? You didn't know Nirvana was a band. You didn't know Kurt Cobain was a singer who committed suicide. You didn't know. You had no clue what I was referencing when I said that, peop, that Come As You Are is a Nirvana song. And we've had people say that we're the Nirvana church. It's no big deal. No big deal. I praise God you don't know it. Um, so I found it funny, but you don't have to. Where was I? I was talking about golf. Yeah. So there's this big golf tournament over in Augusta called the Masters. We'll go with that. Biggest golf tournament there is. So David Faraday's telling this story about back in the 70s, a first-time golfer professional went to compete in the Masters. Back in the 70s, the Masters tournament made you use their local caddies. There was part of, you couldn't bring your own caddy in. Caddy's the person who carries the clubs. Um, You couldn't use... Uh, 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 your own caddy had to use a local one. So this guy was pretty arrogant, thought he was a great golfer, said to the caddy, listen, I don't want you to tell me a word. I don't want you to say a word this entire round. Caddy said, fine. Tenth hole, this golfer hits it into the trees. Comes up, says to the caddy, I'm going to hit it out of the trees with a slight fade. It's going to land on the green. Caddy, as he's told, says nothing. Golfer executes the shot perfectly, perfectly. Hits the ball, fades out of the trees, curves around, lands on the green. And the golfer turns to the caddy and says, what do you, what do you think of that? Caddy says, it wasn't your ball. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know golf, that's a bad thing. To hit somebody else's ball is not only a penalty, but can result in disqualification. Listen, church, it is not enough that you're swinging the club. Are you with me? It is not enough that you're merely at church and you're singing songs of praise and maybe you're clapping, dancing, lifting your hands. It is not enough. Why? Why? Because the only way to relationship with God is through the cross of Christ. Peter says this, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. What do you lack to live the right life? Nothing. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption by human desires. It is all Peter is said in 1 Peter, carries on in 2 Peter by the cross of Christ that you're able to do it. On the night before his death, Jesus stands before his followers and he says, This is my body, 
which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He is visually demonstrating to them what is about to take place on the cross. It will literally happen. The cross literally happens so that our sins could be paid for. It'll happen, but it happened just once for all. It's finished. It'll happen so that we can live in freedom from sin and forgiveness from sin. It's the greatest gift of all eternity, the cross of Christ. When we come to this table this morning, here's my prayer for each and every one of us, that we will receive the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that forgives us from our sins and at the same time frees us from having to sin and that we will walk in the life and godliness that God's divine power enables us to walk in. Lord, we pray this morning that you would, by your might, your power, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness that comes by the cross. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've provided in the cross. We thank you that there is forgiveness. We thank you that there is life. We thank you that there's freedom. We thank you that we have a relationship with the living God. Lord God, I pray right now as we come to this table that we will receive everything that you desire for us to receive. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. People, as you come to the table of the Lord this morning, if, you're, if you are a guest here at Fullness and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what church you came from, we invite you to come. We believe we're all part of the body of Christ. So come and take. What will happen is this, these center sections will come down the center aisle, outside sections down the outside. Take the bread and the cup. Take it back to your place. And then as the body of Christ, we'll all partake of it together. But as you do, this morning particularly, think about the finished, complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Come to the table of the Lord.